Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas, with the simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Uh, This is actually the last story of David's life we're going to be talking about as a community in this sermon series. The picture that we have up here of David, this kind of boyish look that David has, in this story is long gone. He is, some people estimate he's around 50 years old in the story we're about to hear today. So it is way in the past when he defeated Goliath. It's way in the past where he was anointed and selected by God to to be king. He spent 15 years of his life running in in the desert, waiting for his opportunity to be brought into, uh, into the throne. And David now has finally been king for years, and he's, uh, he's brought together all of the 12 tribes of Israel. He's unified them all. This was a time of great success. You would, you would see this life of David where you've wondered if he really was anointed for this role. You would see what is happening now, and you go, of course he's anointed. Of course God has selected him. Of course he's been separated and set apart for this role. He even brought in the Ark of the Covenant, as we uh, talked about last week. And uh, we see that, man, David is an incredible king. We even say that he truly is a person after God's own heart. But it's an interesting thing. Oftentimes, it's when our dreams of our youth have actually been actualized that we are susceptible for great failures. It's, It's common in our life. You would think and you would expect that in the hard years of journeying to get to that place or be in that role or whatever it might be, this dreams that you have, that you're more susceptible for a great failure in the struggle to get there. But what we find in David's life is common to our lives is when you actually have arrived, whatever that means for you, when you ever, you've arrived, it is in that moment that you are uniquely susceptible to make some gigantic mistakes. When you finally have gotten that role, when you finally have gotten the kids out of the house, when you finally have retired, whatever it might be, for whatever reason, I've seen it over in in the the social uh, networks that I have, that sometimes people make some big mistakes when they finally make it. That is the case here. And David's life is depicted very succinctly in the very first verse. It gives a very subtle and a stark warning here. Uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1, In the spring at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. But David remained in Jerusalem. Now in springtime, it's when the rainy season's over with. It's when there's not much uh, need to, to, to man the, the crops. And so a lot of times that's the time when people go to war. And it's at this time where kings would usually go with their troops to the battlefield. But here, David stays back. And oftentimes, the big mistakes we make in our life is simply, it begins by being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And we find that here with David's life, he should be, uh, he should be on the battlefield, but instead he relinquishes his role. He, he sends out his authority with Joab, this general, and he starts living in comfort. He starts just hiding from the battlefield and being in, in the palace there. And this is going to lead to a lot of regret. That simple decision to be at the wrong place at the wrong time goes on in verse 2. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of his palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. 
The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Iliam, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Here's the second mistake. First off, it was being where he didn't belong, and secondly, he saw a woman bathing and was inflamed with lust. And that gave way to curiosity. Huh, I wonder who that is. Just that simple decision of, you know, I, I, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just curious. Who, who is that woman? I just, I wonder, I wonder, is she single? Is she married? What's her story? And so she sends out a messenger to find out. And, you know, nothing's going to come of it. I just want to, I'm just curious. And finds out this is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Now, the servant left David them with himself. And lust gave way to curiosity to find out more about her. And curiosity then gave way to an idea. This is what David knows. David knows that Bathsheba is married, that she's married to Uriah, who is at battle, who will be at battle for a very long time, and he will be gone. David knows that I'm going to know before, before Bathsheba, before Uriah even, when they're going to be back. And so that curiosity gave way to a plan. The other in- interesting and tragic thing is that this is what we also know about Uriah is that Uriah was one of David's 37 mighty men. So these 37 men were some of David's best warriors. David had fought with them. He knew them well. These were his trusted, most trusted men that he would, he would, uh, he would form this band of brothers with. And so David, this is not just some random woman. This is, this is someone, a fellow soldier, someone that David knew well, Uriah, it is his own wife. And instead of seeing Bathsheba as Uriah's wife, he sees her as an opportunity to act on his lust. This story will teach us the grave nature of sin. Now, I know we don't talk about sin much in our society, maybe because we have baggage with it, but here's the reality. is uh, Sin is a part of our life. And this story is teaching us the nature of sin. One of the biblical ideas of sin is about going astray, being led astray, a sheep gone astray. It's oftentimes found in the Bible. And I, I, this is what I know about sheep. They know they don't need to be alone. When they're alone, they're, they're vulnerable. They can get lost. They're endangered. No sheep begins their day going, all right, so th- today's the day I'm going to leave the flock. They don't do that. Instead, this is what happens. They're with the community. They're with the flock. And then they see a patch of grass right there. That looks good. Oh, another patch right there. That looks like that has serendipity salt on it. I'm going to get some of that. And then slowly, one decision after another, after another, they're led so far away from where they ever wanted to be. They're in a place where they're isolated. They're vulnerable. They're afraid. That's a, that's a really bad combo for making good decisions. Isolated vulnerable, afraid. That's the nature of sin is oftentimes in our life we can take one step at a time away from who we know we are. Who we know we are, the life we want to live, one step at a time we end up in a place we never ever would have chosen to be. But we made it one decision at a time. We're going to see that unfortunately that David's just beginning that journey. In verse 4, David then sent messengers to get Bathsheba, to bring her to him. She came to him and he slept with her. Now, what, 
is bizarre about this. I grew up with this story. I, I remember this story growing up. One thing that's just bizarre about this story is that I remember Bathsheba being a, some, painted somehow with questionable character. Like she should have known better. I don't know if I'm alone in that, but I, I grew up with that being a little bit of the story that, that she, she should have known better, that this was somewhat on her as well. I mean, I even used to think that Bathsheba was bathing on a rooftop. She, she, she's never said that she's on the roof. David can see her from his rooftop. He's a total creep, right? <laughs> and so for me, I grew up with this understanding that Bathsheba was somehow, man, she's on this too, when we read this story, we should read it with absolute clarity that David exploits his power. He exploits his power. When you're the most powerful person in the kingdom and you call for someone, they come. And in that day and age, unfortunately, when the most powerful person says, I'm going to take you, it's a lethal decision. It's life and death. And so we see here that David exploits his God-given power to take and abuse this woman. And there's no reason that you should think that Bathsheba wanted this, welcomed this. This man after God's own heart does something so contrary to the heart of God is to take power to exploit and dominate someone else. Godly power is never given for that purpose. Godly power is always given to protect, to seek justice, to seek mercy. So shame on us for ever telling the story that Bathsheba was responsible for this. This is not of the heart of God. Now before we lampoon David for this and this failure, unfortunately the church doesn't have a clean bill of health of being given God-given power and using it to protect, to save, to seek justice and mercy. Unfortunately, the church and the churches as a community, have, we've used our own God-given power to unfortunately Exploit the most vulnerable in our community. We need to rediscover God's heart for God's people. To use whatever, whatever power that we've been given to further God's kingdom, and that's especially for the most vulnerable. Bathsheba, this happens, and Bathsheba unfortunately sends word to David that she's pregnant. David then asks the general to send Uriah, uh, Uriah home, and David again one step at a time, continues to further into deceit. Sin, sin sends us places we never would have imagined we would go. And here's David's plan. I'm going to have Uriah home. He's going to come here. He's going to come to the palace. I'm going to ask him for a report. How was it? How's Joab doing? Is he, is he doing well? How's the battle going? Great. Why don't you go home? Why don't you go home and rest? You can go back tomorrow. And David's thought was, of course, when Uriah goes home, he's going to be with his wife. And then months later, when he finds out that his wife's pregnant, he goes, oh, the Lord was good. The one night I was home, and here we are, we have a child. But there's one problem for David's plan, is that Uriah is a man of godly character. He's a person of incredible character. Uriah comes home, he meets with David just as he expected, and David sent him home just like he was supposed to do. And then David's servants watched to make sure that Uriah did this, and instead, David sleeps on the palace's doorstep. He doesn't even go home. Doesn't even go home. So then David then calls for Uriah. This, I'm sure Uriah's like, what's, what's the story? Why do you want to know about this? David calls for Uriah and says, why, why didn't you go home? I heard that you didn't go home. And listen what Uriah says. 
Uriah said to David, the ark, remember the ark we talked about last week, the very physical reminder, the manifestation of God's presence. It is in Israel and Judah are staying in tents. They're in tents. And my commander Joab and the Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love with, to my wife as surely as you live? I will not do such a thing. His, he has, he's, seeing so, he's seeing so differently than David. David, who is very comfortable with sending the ark, sending the troops on the battlefield, and, and living in comforts, living in the palace. And, and David, is, he, they're seeing so differently. It almost reminds me, it almost reminds me, of, Uriah here reminds me of the clear-eyed David who stepped on the battlefield with Goliath. And he was trying to tell people that, hey, there's a living God here. There's a different story here that we're not seeing. Uriah is seeing it, and David is not clear-eyed. This should have been, could have been the wake-up call for David. But instead, David has Uriah stay one more night. And this time, instead of just coming to the palace and eating, uh, David is very intentional to get Uriah drunk. Again, one step at a time. And then... Now that he's drunk, of course he's going to go home and make a decision he didn't want to do last night. But instead, Uriah, after this evening, he goes and he gets a mat and he sleeps among David's servants. He doesn't even want to, doesn't want to, he doesn't want to even be tempted to do something like something that he should want to do. But no, he stays there. He's incredible, incredible character, incredible integrity. So David now knows his plan won't work. So he's left with this idea. It's going to be exposed. My sin's going to come to light. I'm going to have to do something serious. So he has this idea. I'm going to send Uriah back, but when he goes, I'm going to put a letter. And it's going to be sealed. And only Joab can read it. And this letter is going to tell Joab this. When the fighting is the most fierce, put Uriah there on the front lines. And when it's the most fierce, when it's, the attack is the strongest, Tell your troops to pull back from Uriah and leave him alone and make sure he's killed. So that letter is sealed. It's given to Uriah. Uriah goes to the front lines. He's welcomed by these troops. And sure enough, he's put on the front lines. Sure enough, when the fighting is fierce, he's pulled back and he was killed. And simply in the Scripture, all it says was, and Uriah was killed. It's something so simple. Now, we could read that line and just go on with the story. I just want us to stop for a little bit. I think sometimes we need to engage Scripture with our imagination to really experience God's Word as we should. Slow down for a little bit. Think about this. That battle after battle for years, Uriah had been someone of valor, someone of courage, someone the men and the, and the armies knew of. And so when he showed up at the battlefield, embraced the other soldiers, saw Joab, gave Joab the letter, hey, this is from King David. And Joab opens it with Uriah right there and reads the most unbelievable statement that it's time for us to kill Uriah, to pull back from him, let him die today. And Joab sees this valiant warrior, someone of godly character, and says this makes no sense. And then he sends Uriah to go get his weapons, go to his tent, gathers the troops together, commanders and go. So today when the fighting is fierce, we're going to pull back from Uriah. He, he needs to die today. Think about how these men would have responded. 
No way. No, we, there's no way. We can't do that. How dare you even ask us? And then Joab says it comes from King David. So on that day, Uriah arrives on the battlefield. He's put in the place where it's the most uh, intense. The Ammonite troops are about to charge, and surely there's Uriah. He's ready to fight, believing that God is with them. And when the fighting is the fierce, Joab gives the sign, and the men, right as they're about to charge, pull back. Uriah charges. He runs ahead of everyone else. And then he slowly notices there's no sign of his brothers on his right or left. There's no sound of their cheers. And as the troops are charging him, running after him, he looks around. And these men who have fought together, they've buried each other's friends. They have seen each other need one another. He turns around and sees them, and they have their swords at their side at a distance with their shoulders slunk. In the last moments of Uriah's life is when he knows he's been betrayed. Think of the consequence of sin. When we think of the consequence of sin, we might think it's just me, just between me and God. What this story will teach us is the consequence of sin is always communal, always affects the community. I'm grateful that that's not the end of David's story and the end of this story. The grace of God can look like a lot of things. Sometimes the grace of God can look like uh, a refuge, a place of comfort. Sometimes the grace of God is like a two-by-four of honesty that wakes us up. That's what David needs here. That's what David needs here. So God sent the word to Nathan, this man, this incredible prophet, Nathan. God send words, sends word to him. Nathan knows the whole story, exactly what happened. But Nathan also knows you don't go to the most powerful person and put, put their face in their sin, what they thought was hidden and never will be exposed. He's smarter than that. So what he does is he tells a story. He knows that there's a power in a story. And so he comes to King David and says, King David, there's two men. There's a rich man and a poor man. The rich man has cattle, livestock, everything he had ever need. And the poor man, he has one young lamb. And he's, he treats this young lamb with such care. He feeds this lamb from his own plate. He lets this lamb drink from his own cup. Even at night, the way he sleeps, he holds this lamb in his arms. One day, there's a traveler who comes through. They want to prepare a feast. So this rich man, instead of going to his own livestock, goes to this poor man's lamb, takes it, and slaughters it for a feast. He doesn't even have to wait. Nathan doesn't even have to wait to ask King David, what should we do? King David interrupts the story in verse 5 by saying this. This is in uh, 2, Samuel verse, uh, 2 Samuel 12, verse 5. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. <laughs> and then Nathan, he takes this picture that he painted like, so he just painted this picture through this story. He takes it and he flips it around and he finds out it's a mirror. And he says the next four words that would break David open. You are that man. Mic drop. <laughs> Those four words I think would mark the rest of David's life. You are 
that man. That righteous justice you just felt, David, that's for you. That sense of condemnation, that righteous fury, think of yourself. After those four words stopped echoing through the palace, Nathan would then give David a judgment from God. It would include disgrace, pain, and conflict that would be in his house forever. And he also shared that unfortunately, the child that was born from Bathsheba and David would be lost. How do you think someone of great power would respond with that? With someone who serves him says, hey, that's you. You are that man. Most people of power in that day, off with his head. He's done. Be quiet, Nathan. Don't you tell anyone. You know, there's so, it's, it's incredible uh, how, how we would imagine this story to be, but I think what we start seeing is redefining what does it mean to be someone after God's own heart. This is how David responds in verse 13. I have sinned against the Lord. That's all David says. Simply, he just says, it's true. How rare is that in our day when a sin has been exposed, someone of great power, for that person to simply say, everything that was said is true. It's all true. How, how, how much more common is it to explain it away to deny it, to blame it on someone else. But instead, David owns not only the sin, but he also owns the consequence of that sin. He puts on sackcloth. He begins to fast. You could just say that David began a process of repentance. He turned from this journey of sin that he was on, and he turned around. He turned around to the grace of God. In this chapter, it speaks with two small statements that's, that tells of, of the power of restoration. After David and Bathsheba lose their son, David goes to clean himself and he actually goes to worship God. They are expecting him to lose his mind, but he actually goes to God and worship. He goes to God and then he comforts his wife. He seeks, he seeks restoration with God and with Bathsheba. They would end up having another son. His name would be Solomon. He'd be a great king. He'd actually build the temple in Jerusalem. The thing that David dreamed he could do, but he couldn't. Solomon did it. Solomon also wrote three books in your Bible. All wisdom literature. I wonder if just watching his father's life, I wonder if he had some wisdom he needed to share. And after that, this chapter also ends with David leaving the palace and going to the battlefield. And ends up, he ends up there leading his troops as they defeat their enemy. So David is restored in right relationship with God, with the person he exploited, and also restoration back into his God-given role. Just as the effects of sin are communal, so is reconciliation. That God wants us to be reconciled not just between he and I, just not just this one vertical relationship, but reconciliation has to happen in a horizontal relationships too. That this is God's heart, is that when we are made reconciled again, it would overflow from a reconciliation with God and spill into the lives of our community that God can make and heal our relationships in our world. That's David's story. 
What a bummer way to end this sermon series, right? I actually think this is an incredibly wise way to end this study on David. First off, it gives us a very, very sharp warning. Just as David showed us how easy it is to take one step at a time towards destruction, we might be on a journey of that today. You might, if, if, you, if you can just take an account, if you can be honest with yourself right now, you might say, I'm, I am, I'm a couple steps towards destruction in my own life. Maybe it's a flirtatious relationship at work. Maybe it's a questionable ethical decision in your life. Maybe it's the fact you're about to do your taxes. That's my job this week. <laughs> Just bending the truth. And what this story is telling us is stop. <laughs> the gift of God is the ability to stop and be honest with God. Turn your eye from the next step the next step towards sin, and turn it towards the power of God's reconciliation. This is something that Solomon, David's son, would write in Proverbs 10. He said, whoever walks in integrity walks securely. You're not going to fall. But whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. This is the time to stop in that journey towards destruction and return to the place you need to be. Return to the person you need to be. Second, is this really a picture of someone after God's own heart? David, really? Does anyone want to take that title away from him after this story? Put an asterisk next to it? Kind of, sometimes, definitely not always. David made legendary mistakes. And this shows us, for me, this redefines what it might mean to be someone after God's own heart. To mean... For me, to be someone after God's own heart does not mean I'm perfect. doesn't mean I'm failure-free. doesn't mean I, I, I don't know what it's like to have this tinge of regret and shame in my life. That's, that's not it. What it means to be after God's own heart means this. You are dependent on the rhythm and the habit of God's grace. You know what it's like to see your sin, to confess it, to turn from it and rely on God's mercy to bring about a new chapter. That is what I know about God's heart. It's faithful, it's patient, it's enduring, it's for you. So when we are people after God's own heart, we are going to have to be desperate for it. Even Jesus said in one of the, in one of the Beatitudes, blessed are those for, to hunger and thirst for righteousness. Not blessed are those who are righteous, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for it, who know that they need it. There is a blessedness in that, for they will be filled. They will be given that. And so for us to be after God's own heart, it actually has to be following David's example of relying on grace and mercy anew. You might have had made some legendary mistakes in your own life. Maybe you feel too far gone from God. This story teaches that God's grace is beyond greater than your failures. He can make all things new. It's interesting, in Jesus' uh, life, we're finding gospel accounts different ways of telling the story. The book of Matthew begins by telling Jesus' story through his lineage. And we've talked about how Jesus is a descendant of David. We've said that a couple times in this sermon series. Guess whose wife brought the lineage of Jesus. It was Bathsheba. 
from this broken relationship which seems so far from God actually gave way to Christ. And in, if you look at your Bible in Matthew, the way it describes this, describes this is that David, the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. He doesn't just say, like, just leave the wife out of it. No, the Scripture is pointing us that there was brokenness in this relationship. There's brokenness in this family line. And if there's brokenness, and yet Jesus can come from that, Jesus can come from the brokenness in your own life too. That with Jesus there is a future, there is a hope. He can do it. He can bring about that restoration and renewal. But it's going to take some courageous honesty. It's going to take some desperate need of God's grace. We're going to finish today with our liturgy out of order. Our liturgy is our order of worship. Uh, usually we have a prayer of confession within the earlier part of our, of our liturgy because we know as a community that we need to learn what it means to confess and receive forgiveness together, that we'll never graduate beyond that. But today we moved our prayer of confession after this message because I want us to, to hear and recite the psalm that David wrote from this moment. When Nathan brought his sin to him in this mirror, David didn't deny it. He didn't run away from it. He actually took his heart and his need to God in prayer, and he wrote a psalm about it. And this is a psalm that's been my, my prayer script when I have been caught in my own sin, and I don't know what to say. I've been able to say these words, God created me a pure heart, restored me the joy of your salvation. You don't, you don't delight in sacrifices or I'd bring it. My sacrifice, O oh God, is a broken and a contrite heart, O oh Lord, that you will not despise. For wherever you are today, take your heart to God.